through singing and reading God's word and through fellowship and praying together. We also gather this morning, as we have done uh, earlier this morning, as we do each year on the second Sunday in November, to remember those who laid down their lives in the First World War and the Second World War and in other conflicts and areas of service since. I was reminded on Friday, as the UK paused at 11 a.m., for the two-minute silence, just how poignant a moment of stillness like that can be. It's a powerful thing for the whole nation to come to a stop and be still for even just a moment. For many of us, it's a moment of prayer and reflection. For many of us, it's a moment of commemoration. But for all of us, it's a moment of silence. And that's a rare thing in our world today because our world has become increasingly noisy and dominated by noise. There are now more ways than ever to avoid silence if you want to. Uh, we can catch up with TV, we can listen again, we can watch on demand, we can uh, relentlessly keep up to date with the news stories on the 24-hour news cycle, um, and we can stream music for free all day every day and never have to hear the same song twice if we don't want to. And on this diet of constant noise that we're surrounded by, silence for many of us has become something to be endured briefly and disrupted as quickly as possible. Sometimes, though, breaking silence is a good thing, like going over to speak to somebody whenever they first come to church and to welcome them. That's a really good way to break silence. And also maybe to lift the phone and, and make that really difficult phone call to the person and when that relationship has become difficult and hit choppy waters, that's a good way to break the silence. Paul Simon wrote in his song, The Sound of Silence, about how in some circumstances like that, silence like a cancer grows. However you look at it, silence can be and is powerful and can be used powerful and it can communicate a lot of things. As we continue this morning to look through the book of Samuel Kings in the Immerse series, we're going to see how God used a moment of silence on Mount Sinai to uh, bring correction and revelation to the prophet Elijah and also to encourage him. And we'll consider how God's interaction with Elijah helps us in our Christian walk today. And so as we come to the passage, we find Elijah exhausted under a tree and he's eating some food provided for him by an angel. And that's really in preparation to give him strength for a journey that he's about to take. He's about a day's walk into the wilderness, just south of a town called Beersheba, which is right in the south of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's about to go a further 40 days into that wilderness to the Mount Sinai, uh, the mountain of God, where, where God had met with Moses and given the law. When Elijah finally reaches Mount Sinai after his journey, he finds a cave where he spends the night. And at some point during the night, the Lord comes to him and asks him the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so it's clear to us reading that, that the Lord did not send him, did not instruct him to go to Mount Sinai. And in fact, he wasn't really meant to be there at all. So God asks, why are you here, Elijah? And before we look and think about his response, we just think for a minute about how Elijah's going to respond. And really, it comes to God in the form of a complaint and a series of complaints. And I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation like that, but as someone goes through a list of stuff, sometimes you're listening to what they're saying and you're thinking, yes, yes, no, I can see that. I can see how that's been really difficult for you. I can see how that's caused you 
pain and I can see what has happened there. And then maybe something in the conversation gives you pause and you go, whoa, hold on a minute. Now that doesn't seem right to me. I don't think you've got that quite the right way. And that's what happens in Elijah's response. So we're going to kind of go through it a little bit and just see what he says here. So as he responds to God in verse 10, he says, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. And that's, that's right. He did zealously serve the Lord. And just previous to this passage on Mount Carmel, he'd been an absolute lion for God. And, and he had defeated the prophets of Baal in this mighty contest. And he goes on then. So that's right. And he goes on to say, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars. And that's right as well, because under a succession of pretty terrible kings, the people of Israel had turned to worshiping Baal, who was just basically an idol, a made-up god. But then comes the clangor in what Elijah's saying to God, because he goes on to say, and they've killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Now they were trying to kill him. There was a death threat issued to him by Jezebel. And that's when his faith crumbled and he, and he fled. But somehow or another, he is really off base with this answer. And what he's saying isn't right. He really needs to kind of stop and look at what he's saying. Because just before our passage, Obadiah had told Elijah directly about 100 prophets who he had personally protected from the persecution that was coming from Jezebel. But something about Elijah's mindset had made him just ignore that. He just didn't want to really engage with the fact that there were other prophets alive in Israel. So he's dismissing Obadiah. He is dismissing the other prophets who are alive. And worst of all, he's dismissing God by insinuating that he, Elijah, sees all and knows all and knows everything that's happening in Israel. Something was also amiss about the journey he had taken from Beersheba to Mount Sinai because it's a journey that should have taken eight days, but it took 40. And that brings to mind for us the Exodus and the people who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. And given how afraid Elijah was and how he was fleeing for his life, you would think that this man who had been described as a mighty man of prayer would be crying out on his journey to God the whole way, he'd be lamenting the whole way, but there's no, message, uh, no mention in the passage at all of even one word of lament from Elijah to God. Kevin DeYoung, an American pastor and author, says this about, about lament. He says, the difference between self-pity and lament is that lament is directed towards God, but self-pity is issuing a lament over and over again to take pleasure in hearing the lament over and over again. Elijah is struggling with pride. And pride really can manifest itself in a couple of different ways. It, uh, it can say, I deserve admiration because of how many things I've achieved. But it can also say, I, can, I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. And so Jonathan Edwards writes about pride, and he said, Pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. In his zeal, Elijah had expected lasting victory or even a national revival after his triumph on Mount Carmel. But it didn't happen, and a death threat came instead. 
And somehow or another, his ego and his perception of the world in that moment was shattered. And he found himself in a place of deep fear and despair and melancholy. For us, often the greatest test of our character as followers of Jesus and his disciples comes in the area of how God is using us and how God's bringing forward spiritual fruit in our lives from the gifts that he's given us. Because what can happen is we begin to rely on ourselves. We begin to think, I'm doing some really amazing stuff here. And we forget that it's God. And we start to rely on ourselves. And that is really problematic. Because we become self-reliant. And we begin to depend on ourselves instead of God. And we become resistant to submitting ourselves to him. And we become critical of other people. And we start to deny the gifts that they're using and the gifts that they have been given. And we begin to happily receive for ourselves the honor that is due to God alone. And what we really do in the midst of all that is take God off the throne in our lives and we sit down in that place ourselves. And it's not long as we sit there before we're completely crushed by fear and despair because like all other idols, we do a really bad job at being God. But as always, God is loving and caring, and he cares for us when we're in this state of rebellion. He cared for Adam and Eve in their state of rebellion, and he cares for Elijah in this passage as well, in the form of an angel who provided food for Elijah so that he could have the strength to make the journey of rebellion. But now he's about to meet God, and God's going to both humble Elijah and develop his understanding of how he works in the world. And so in verse 11, we read that passage where the Lord tells Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord is going to pass by and a mighty windstorm hits the mountain. And it was so terrible, the blast, that it, it loosened the rocks and the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And that's sometimes been translated a brief sound of silence. And in that silence, Elijah immediately recognized the presence of God. And verse 13 tells us he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And it's there, standing at the entrance of the cave with his face hidden, that God reveals to Elijah that although the great and visible displays of his power in the natural world and in the lives of his followers and his people are sometimes how he works, the reality is much bigger and much more complex and much more mysterious than that. More often than not, God is bringing about his good purposes for all of creation in the silence, in imperceivable ways, that even the closest people to him don't recognize. Not by power or by might, but by spirit, says the Lord. And both Elijah and we today can learn an important truth about how God works in that. But more importantly, we learn something about who God is. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes even if we cannot see what he's doing. And he appears to be completely silent 
or we even feel like he's absent. Whenever you feel like everything is against you, and even when all that is important to you has been torn down, God is still there and he's still working. And that is because he's faithful and loving and unfailing towards each and every one of us. In the place of discouragement and despair, the truth of God's love for us is the mountain that we should always run to. We should always go there and remind ourselves that God loves us. The way to get there through the wilderness of despair is by submitting ourselves to God humbly in prayer, echoing the words of Jesus in Gethsemane when he said, yet not my will, but your will be done. So the Lord asks Elijah the same question again, standing there at the entrance of the cave. What are you doing here, Elijah? And even though Elijah speaks the same response exactly word for word to God, the Lord knows that Elijah has been changed by the encounter and he's ready to be used by God again. So verse 15 follows straight away and it just says, the Lord told him to go back the same way he came to travel, travel to the wilderness of Damascus. Elijah would be used again by God, but not really in the same way that he was before. His main job now was to anoint his replacement and two soon-to-be kings, one the upcoming king of Israel and the other a foreign king who really would sow the seeds and, and that was the seeds of the exile being sown. God was going to continue his work of purifying Israel through these three people in different ways. But God has something else to reveal to Elijah. So in, in verse 18, he says, Yet I will preserve 7,000 in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. The reality for us is that since the fall, human beings have always been in proud rebellion to God. And despite all the guidance and God's covenant faithfulness, humans really will never be able to fulfill our side of the agreement in our own strength. And yet God promised to raise up a descendant of David who would sit on a royal throne forever so that there is hope for the people of Israel and Judah, even in exile, and for us today. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and yet he was born in utter humility and obscurity, coming not to be served, but to serve. He's the only person who ever lived who never became prideful, even though he had every reason to do so. And he's the only person who ever lived who never gave in to self-pity, even though he's the only person. He, has, he had every reason to do so. And when he went to the cross and willingly laid down his life, he made a new covenant, an everlasting covenant of peace for us, between us and God. And that's available to all of us, to anyone who will turn from proud rebellion and surrender to the humble servant king, who is actually the king of kings. As we marked this morning, we did have the moment of silence. And as we talked about, there's different things that we can think about in that. And we do remember those who bravely gave their lives. And we think about current conflicts. And we pray for Ukraine and, and for God's mercy to be shown there and for justice to come in this life. But we also remember that God is always present and working. Even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of war, but perhaps most of all in the silence that can be heard when the gunfire ceases and peace descends. Not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your eternal covenant of peace mediated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that in the silence you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Lord, we want to say again today that we trust you, that the truth of your goodness to us does not change when we can't feel you near. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word to guide us in that. And we pray that you would use us, Lord, to encourage others who feel that God has abandoned them. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to worship the Lord.